Well, thank you, Stephen. I, I don't know about you, but I could have sang that hymn all night. It was powerful. Uh, it was truly wonderful uh, to hear and to, to, to read those words as we are singing and as our hearts would rise to him. And was, as we said last week, a high view of God leads to high worship. And that hymn was very evident of that. To use a technical term, we would say high theology leads to a high doxology. Simply meaning, the greater and the deeper view we have of who God is, the higher our worship will be. The deeper our worship will be. And it's our view of him, it's how we view him. Remember what we had considered last week. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. And it's hard to believe it's another, another Wednesday. It doesn't seem a week from where we're here. Uh, so it's good to see you back. I didn't put you to sleep last week. Uh, so it's good to have you uh, back, and it's very encouraging to see you. We're going to be turning to various passages of Scripture tonight. But I want to, uh, by way of introduction, if you would turn, please, uh, to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. And verse 25. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Think of, think of that verse for a second, and let that ponder in your mind. Verse 26. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servant shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. And amen, and God will bless the public reading of his word. Just let us bow our heads and you ask the Lord to speak to you. And as we listen uh, tonight to his word, uh, we know that the Lord is looking to speak to us through his word. So just let us come before him now. Our Father, our gracious Father in heaven, we give thee thanks and we give thee praise for what we have been singing already. Lord, surely our hearts ascended right to heaven, Lord, when we were singing those beautiful words that were penned for us. And Father, we pray now as we come to your word that you would indeed help us, that you would bless us. Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would enlarge our understanding of who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us at the very point of our need. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. You will know that uh, last week and these few evenings, and this is the, the, the last one, we have been considering uh, the study of God, or it has been titled The Attributes of God, and as we did say last week, we'll not get through them all in one night, never mind two nights. Uh, we could spend our lives studying uh, the attributes of who God is. Last week, just to recap very quickly, last week we considered by way of introduction the necessity and uh, the, the, a brief history of the, of the study of God, which comes under the umbrella of theology, the study of of God, and how at one time theology was named as the queen of sciences. It was lofty. It was uh, it was right up there with the agenda of academics. 
Men studied theology. It was seen as the queen of sciences. And this perspective, um, as we considered last week, changed dramatically in 1859, as we know the date 1859, where we had the Great Awakening here in Ireland and beyond. But it was also a bad year in that Charles Darwin penned his book, The Origin of Species, which brought around the whole concept of evolution. And this infiltrated into our universities, and we are still seeing the consequences of his book and his writings today. It brought into doubt the existence of God. It brought into doubt his creation. It brought into doubt all of the truths that are in Scripture and the doctrines of Scripture and the creation of God. And we see the consequences, as I've said, of that today. Our universities all of which, or many of which, particularly in the UK, were built on biblical principle, Oxford, Cambridge, Queen's University, all built on biblical principles in their origins. And yet now you see the decline and you see the declension that there is, that the study of God, theology, is just another ology. It's the same as biology and sociology and all of the ologies that we could consider this evening. We also consider that how we see God or how we view God is how we live our lives. If we, if we have a low view of God, we will have low worship. It's the lens through which we view every situation and every circumstance, our view of who God is and His character. A high view of God, as we said in the beginning, leads to high worship doesn't it? It's self-explanatory. Therefore, our study and your study of God is imperative. Who He is, His character, His attributes. The church is at her strongest when she has a high view of God. Stephen Lawson writes, just as a healthy root system is vital for a mighty oak tree to grow, the roots of our knowledge of God must be deep and solid. And dear people this evening, if your roots in the knowledge of God and His character and who He is is shallow, well, you, would, you will lead a shallow spiritual life. When the trials come, when the trouble comes, and it will, if your roots are not rooted in the knowledge and the character of God, well, you'll topple over and you'll, and you'll go flat on your face. How we view God is how we live our lives. You read your church history, any great awakenings that we can read of in church history, particularly under Edwards, under the, under the Puritans, even more recently, all have had a high view of God and have had a deep view of his character. Edwards, you can read his sermon online, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was his title. It's a title that wouldn't bring many numbers in today, would it? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as he read that sermon with a high view of who God is, 
People in the pews were gripping onto the pews and the pillars in fear of being lost into hell. They were, they were physically gripping onto the pews. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Here was Edwards and he couldn't hardly read. He, he, he read his sermon. He, he read it under a candle. Read his sermon. And yet many people were swept into the kingdom of God. And we could go on with examples. And all of these point to this fact that these men on their knees, these men behind the pulpit, people in the pew, had a high view of God and a high view of His character. How's your view of God tonight? How do you view Him? How's your understanding of Him? Are you still very much on the milk of who He is? Or are you on the meat of the Word? I want you to read, or I, I, want us to, I want you to listen to this. Here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote in his 20s just 20, as known as the Prince of Preachers. Here's what he wrote concerning the study of God. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to the master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. Every other study, as I said last week, Every other study that we can study in academics come to the height of their, of their study. They, they go away puffed up many and say, well, I, I, how wise am I? What, what information have I retained and attained? But the true study of God is this. We go away undone. We go away knowing who we are. We go away knowing that we're filthy. We, know, we go away knowing that we are completely depraved in the sight of a holy God. If there's ever a time where we need to realize who God is and who we are in comparison, then we'll get a revelation of who He is and what He has done for us. He went on to say, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God, but while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Our study of who God is. And my dear friend, this evening, as I have challenged my own self, I would be as to be dare to say to you tonight, that you and I know all about the person we love, don't we? We know all about them, whether that's our spouse, whether that's our children, whether, whether that's our parents. We know all about whom we love. We know all their attributes. We know how they act. We know how they react. We know even by their countenance of what mood they're in, don't we? We know all about the people who we love. Are, and 
Is it the case that many lack knowledge of the triune God is because we don't know Him? Or greater still, that we don't love Him? We're not spending time with Him. We'll know all about the person we love. How much do you know about Him? His character, His attributes. Dear people, once we get into this, once you get into this, you'll be lost in its, as Spurgeon says, in its immensity. The knowledge of who he is, his attributes. Let's name some of these attributes. The majesty of God. The trinity of God. The aseity of God. The sovereignty of God. The holiness of God. The omnipresence of God. The omnipotence of God. The omniscience of God. The wisdom of God. The foreknowledge of God. The thankfulness of God. The grace of God. The love of God. The long-suffering of God. The wrath of God. How much do we know him? How much do you know him? How much do I know him? Now, it's very well at times to, and I'm not speaking of this, to have an academic view of who God is. Many people have an, the Pope has an academic view of who God is. He doesn't know him. But to have a knowledge of who he is through the revelation of Scripture and the and the, applied by the Holy Spirit, and a, a, a deep sense of who He is, then you've power. Then you've something. So vast, so deep, that our thoughts get lost. And once we try and get a bit of a grapple and a bit of a, a hold on something, then it just goes into oblivion. We're lost again. And how we need to bathe and bath and get into the deep things of God and His character. I want us to consider tonight the immutability of God. You say, what does that mean? The wondrous fact, the comforting fact, that God does not change. The immutability of God. Does that not bring comfort to your heart tonight? Does that not swell within you that God does not change? Yesterday, today, forever, He's the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to His name. The comforting fact that God does not change. A.W. Pink wrote these word, words. God cannot change for the better, for he is perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Also, and I'm retracting here a little bit, we considered very briefly last week the aseity of God, which means that God had no beginning, he's self-existent, and he has no ending. There's, you and I need someone, uh, as we know, there's God to, uh, it's where we get our life, it's where we get our oxygen, it's where we get our being, but God, he's, the aseity of God, he's self-existent. He doesn't need anything or anyone. 
And when we consider this great doctrine or this great attribute of the immutability of God, we, we get lost and we, get, we fall in wonder, knowing that God doesn't change. We live in a world that is consistently and constantly changing. It's, it's all we know. Everything we know is change. We, we, we can't exist without change. Everything changes. Let's consider very quickly the planet Earth. And it's changing. Number one, the planet Earth is changing. The surface of the Earth is broken into seven large plates. Each plate is 50 miles thick. And they move half an inch to several inches each year. We're constantly changing. The earth is constantly changing. Temperatures change. Seasons change. The weather changes. The whole argument for and against for the great climate change. How controversial that topic is. But nevertheless, the arguments for and against, nevertheless, it's change. Life is changing. Not only is planet Earth changing, but life is changing. Arsenic was used to make green dye in the 1800s. Mercury was used in fillings. Heroin was originally used as a cough medicine. Asbestos was used for artificial snow at Christmas. Cigarettes were prescribed to help pregnant women with anxiety. Change, change, change in all around I see. We're constantly changing. We could go on medically, the changes, and we thank God for the advancement and change in, medic, in, in medical terms. In technology, we've changed. All's changing. We have social changes. Gay marriage is now legal, at once illegal. Laws are changing, ideas are changing, methods are changing, ideas in business are changing. We change our minds, we change our ideas, we change our thoughts, we change our homes, we change our jobs. I was going to say we can change our spouse, but you can't do that. We constantly change and live in a world that is constantly changing. But God never changes. Think of it. Think of it for a second. It's hard to comprehend it. It's hard to get our arms around it. It's, it's like getting our arms around the Pacific Ocean, isn't it? That, that God never changes? Not even a little bit? The immutability of God. So where do we turn to find out of this great attribute? Where do we turn to find out this great study, of course, and very obviously we turn to the Word of God? Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, which is a very uh, well-known verse, we, we read these words, For I am the Lord, coming from the, 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 the mouth of, of God Himself, for I am the Lord, what? I change not. Simple as that. How can we contradict it? We humans are mutable. The opposite to immutable. We are subject to change. We're liable to change. But God is immutable. He's unchanging over time. He's unable to change. 
This word immutable is an interesting word. It comes from the Latin word immutabilis, which means unchangeable in the strongest terms. God is immutable. God does not change. And Scripture is emphatic regarding this truth. What does emphatic mean? It's a, it's a very interesting word as well when it comes to what the Bible says and the meaning behind some of these words and some of these uh, attributes. But concerning the immutability and indeed all the attributes of God, Scripture is emphatic, which means it's expressing forcibly and clearly. And Scripture is emphatic regarding this truth of the immutability and the unchanging God. We read in Romans chapter 11, verses 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans eleven thirty-three. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. These verses are unbelievable. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who who hath been his counselor? Of course, no one. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For in him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. It's as simple as that. How does the atheist come up against that verse? How do the academics come up against that verse? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's closed. God never changes. I want us to consider in the closing moments that we have First of all, the unchangeable in his nature. God is unchangeable in his nature. We read in the epistle to James, we read these words. James 1 and 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variousness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There is no change. Each of these verses back up this tremendous and glorious truth. God's character, His ways, His purposes, His promises, His, His plans, His glory are free from any change. And if, if, think of it for a second, that the God who, away back there in Genesis 1-1, that God has never changed from that. Even, even before Genesis 1-1, he, he, he has never changed. His character has never changed. His his mind has never changed. His character. He wants nothing. He loses nothing. 
He exists by himself and for himself without any new nature, new thoughts, new will, new purposes, or new place. God is incapable of change. He's incapable of the least alteration, Charnock writes. He's incapable of altering things. He never changes. The psalmist, when speaking of the heavens and the earth in comparison to God, writes, this is such an interesting point. When the, the psalmist penning Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, which we have read together. I'll read it again, if you, if you just follow it along. Speaking of the heavens, speaking of earth, and speaking of himself. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, So he's saying that the heavens will perish. But thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So let's recap for a second. The heavens are the most ancient records where God has written His glory, yet these shall change. Think of that. The most ancient record of the hand of God is the heavens, and yet they will change. Second Peter 3.12 tells us this. It says, looking and hastening unto the coming day of, the, of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, that the heavens shall pass away, the most ancient thing, of course, known to man, even they will change. Thomas Watson writes, Thus the heavens be changed, but not he who dwells in heaven. Isn't that amazing? That when we take a look out, and remember we considered the heavens last week, we, the, the, the Bible speaks of three heavens. It speaks of the atmospheric heaven, which we see where we get our rain from, our hydrological cycle, our, our water system. Then we go into the planetary heavens where we see on these beautiful evenings, we see the, the stars in the sky, the, 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 the wonder of it all that the psalmist writes, that the, the heavens declare His glory the atmospheric heaven, the planetary heavens, and then the third heaven where God dwells. And he will remain unchanged, unmoved. Sometimes our Christian experience has a high tide, hasn't it? Sometimes we're on the mountaintop. Sometimes we're at a low ebb. Sometimes our faith is like a burning torch, isn't it? And yet other times, it's not even enough to light a match. But God never changes. That's why, that's why, and I want to emphasize this point because this is a big problem in the church today. We don't go and live our Christian lives 
based on our feelings. Don't go in your feelings. Don't trust your heart. My heart told me to say this. Don't you trust your heart? Because we're depraved. We're sinful. Our hearts are sinful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't go in your feelings. Don't go in your feelings, oh, I feel saved today and I feel that I'm not so saved tomorrow. Don't go in your feelings. Go on what the Word of God says. That He's redeemed you. He's called you by your name. You're His. Don't go in your feelings. The accuser, the old devil himself, loves to come in on, in our feelings. When considering all of these great truths and all of these great doctrines, we say, what saith the Scriptures? We can be up on the mountaintops this Wednesday and we can be in the depths next Wednesday. But God remains unchanged. His truth remains unchanged. It never changes. He, he never changes. And, and we can't get our heads around that. Because the most decent of people, the most straight-laced people change. Don't they? They change. They're, they're variable. They're mutable. But I'm glad, and I'm sure you're glad, and I hope you're glad tonight, that we come to an immutable God. The God who hangs the earth on nothing. The God who has the hairs on your head numbered. The God who has penned your name in his book in heaven. The God who has said, fear not. The God who has said that I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's the God that we serve. And we need to be always and consistently reminded of this fact because whether consciously or, up or subconsciously, we, sometimes we don't trust him as we ought to. Isn't that right? But God, you have said, I believe he, he wants us to do that. You have said in your word. You have said constant, a consistent, immutable God. David's grace was so strong at one time that he said, the, 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 that God of my rock in him will I trust in 2 Samuel 22 and 3. That's, what, that, that, that's his, his, his faith was so strong at that time. And yet at another time he says, I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. And we know the variances in David's life, don't we? The man after God's own heart at, uh, was an adulterer and turned out to be a murderer. He was in the mountaintops and then he was in the valleys. Which of us can say that our faith never bends? That our faith never wavers? We can't comprehend it. But with God... God who was without any shadow of turning. If our Christian lives were based on how we live our lives, we would be nowhere. Where would we be without the hand of God, without his sovereign hand on our lives? 
without him there to pick us up again. The immutability of God. The very angels in heaven are subject to change. They were, they were created holy, but they're mutable. They're subject to change. And Jude 6 tells us that, and you can read that when you go home. God is from all eternity. Psalm 93 and 2 tells us the God from everlasting to everlasting. The eternal king, Jeremiah 10.10. 10, the immortal God, Romans 1.23. Created things have a beginning and an ending, but not so their creator. He has no beginning and he has no ending. How can we get our heads around it? How, how, how can we comprehend it? A child, a simple child asks, who made God? And we can say, back as a child would understand that God did not need to be made. He was always there. He's self-existent. The aseity of God. Not only unchangeable in his nature, but he's unchangeable in his character. God's character, his character does not change. There are many people where their characters change. They change with various circumstances that come their way. They change around people. Our, our, our characters are, even the most steady of us are subject to change. Isn't that right? God is as holy today as he always was. And when we consider some of these Old Testament passages, and Stephen referred to it in Isaiah 6, the, the, the great chapter of the holiness of God, the thrice holy God, and he's as holy back in Isaiah's day as he is today. He doesn't change. He's as gracious today as he always was. He's as righteous today as he always was. He's as loving today as he always was. And the God of the New Testament is no less angry with sin as he is in the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is no less angry with sin as he was in the Old Testament, rather. The God of the Old Testament is no less love than the God of the New. He, he doesn't change. How were people saved in the Old Testament? Exactly the same way we're saved today. By grace and by grace alone through the finished work of Calvary. We, work, we, we look back at the cross and the Old Testament ones looked to the cross. It's exactly the same way of redemption. Thomas Menton writes that this is an attribute that is like a, a silken string through a chain of pearl, runneth through all the rest of his attributes. And, and we could say that. That the, the, that the fact of the immutability of God runs around all the other attributes of God. It's like a, a silk string running through the pearls of, the, of all of these attributes of God. The very fact that we stand comforted tonight in all of these attributes and all the study of God is that they're all immutable. His, his omnipresence, His omniscience, his, his love, His wrath, His mercy, it's all immutable. It doesn't change. 
God does not change. His love is unchanging. His justice is unchanging. How he deals with sin is unchanging. His mercy is unchanging. Hebrews 13 and 8. Jesus Christ, the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. Doesn't change. The, the, the same plan of redemption is, is just the same. What a wonder. Surely this brings comfort to you tonight. Surely this brings solace to our souls that God doesn't change. God unchanging, God immutable is stamped all, all through his attributes, as I've said. So he's unchangeable in his nature. He's unchangeable in his character. But I want us to consider thirdly is that God's truth doesn't change. His word doesn't change. It doesn't change. Contrary to popular opinion. Therefore, our study of this book is imperative. Our understanding of its truth, our understanding of doctrine, our understanding of the character of God is imperative because it doesn't change. And a, a large part of the problem with many people today and many believers and sadly many preachers is that they haven't got a grip of this book. Culture might change, but God doesn't change. He doesn't change. God's word and their promises do not change. Our words can change, can't they? It's fickle. Our words can be indecisive. You get a, a young couple in love. We've all been there. And you say things. And you have the best intentions in the world and it changes. Things change. The best of us change. Our words, what we, our promises, we change our minds. We go back on our word. We say things that we don't mean, don't we? We break our promises, we break our word, but how comforting is it that his word never changes? Wouldn't it be an awful thing for you to rise up in the morning to have your quiet time or whenever you have it in the evening or whenever it is and this book is subject to change? Is it the same today as it was yesterday? Does this book still apply to this situation? Does it apply to this situation? Oh, well, it couldn't apply to that situation. It doesn't change. His word doesn't change. John 10, 35, from the words of our Lord himself, he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Doesn't change. God's truth doesn't change. Matthew five eighteen. for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
God's Word doesn't change. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but what? The Word of our God shall stand forever. And it will stand, and it does stand. It's unchangeable. God's Word is our rock, which is a metaphor which is the, the Scriptures is, is intertwined with this metaphor of, of, of God being our rock. We spoke of it a little earlier where David said uh, that, that God is, is His rock. Rocks don't move. Rocks don't change. God is our rock. Now, this is not speaking of a, of a little pebble on the beach. Speaking of, of the rock of our salvation, is there anything more constant than a rock? A rock in the middle of the ocean where the waves tumble and the waves flow. Is there anything more, more steadfast than the rock that is in the middle of a raging sea? Exodus 17, 6 speaks of the rock. Exodus 32, 21 to 22. Deuteronomy 32, 4. 2 Samuel 22, verse, verse 3. Speaking of the rock, speaking of the immutability, speaking of the unchangeableness, the unchanging God. David in the Psalms. And if ever we were to find some, the heart of of what we could go through and what we go even through in this in our day and in our generation, David went through it. The psalmist went through it. And the psalms is infiltrated with this rock. Let's just consider a few for a, a very short time. Psalm 18, 2, we read, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my strength, in whom will I trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. He's, he's, he's a rock to go to. He's unchanging. Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my, my, the word strength, Many commentators have said that is another root word for rock, my, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. Psalm 62, 2, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How comforting is this verse? Psalm 61, 2. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And I can tell you today that that verse, Psalm 61 2, I, I personally have lived that verse out through trying times, through difficult times, when, when, when feeling overwhelmed, knowing that I can come to an immutable, to, to an unchanging God who is my rock, who, who knows the end from the beginning, 
who doesn't change his attitude, who doesn't change his mind, who doesn't change even our circumstance. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And if you don't have that verse underlined in your Bible, I would suggest you do it and you familiarize yourself with it because it will bring great comfort to you. as you go through the storms of life. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me what? Hide myself in thee. What truth? The unchangeable in his nature, unchangeable in his character. His word is unchangeable. His truth is unchangeable. And we're finished tonight. God's ways do not change. God's purposes do not change. Does God change his mind? No, he doesn't. Now, this could be a controversial topic to some. Does God change his mind? Not a bit. You see, we try and reason with God. We try and, even as with the, with the best will in the world, we try and reason and we try to to work it out. Well, does God change his mind? Of course he does. And there are, there are examples that you could put to me. Well, in Genesis 6, 6, he, it repented him that, that he created the world. For Samuel 15, 11, for making Saul king. His decision to destroy Nineveh. Hezekiah, when he prayed that God gave him 15 more years, did, did God change his mind? No, he didn't change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. He knows the end from the beginning, but he's working out his purposes. And when we're reading verses like this and all of Scripture, we need to be mindful of one thing. Context, context, and context. Don't try and limit God to our understanding. God doesn't change his mind. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1 and 11. He, he's working all things through the counsel of his own will. He's working out all things for his glory to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We can't get our heads around that. But God is immutable. God is high and lofty. God is a way above us. His understanding is far-reaching. We need to have a high view of God. All these questions that we could come to that we can't answer tonight. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree. We wither and perish, but none not changeth thee. I want to finish with this quote, which will summarize this conclusion, I hope. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, here's what he wrote. If he changed his decree, it must be from some defect of wisdom or foresight. For that is the reason why men change their purposes. They see something after which they did not see before. But this cannot be the cause why God should alter his decree. Because his knowledge is perfect. He sees all things in one entire 
prospect before him. Dear people, this evening we need to have a high view of God. Does that mean we don't pray? Of course not. God longs that we pray. God longs that we cry unto him because he's told us in his word. That's what we should do. We, we should cry unto him. We should be prostrate before him. Our immutable, unchanging God. Take comfort tonight. His unchangeable in his nature, unchangeable in his character, and his truth, his word, is unchangeable. May the Lord bless this truth to our hearts. I would like us to sing, if you would not mind, number 490 again. I had another one picked, but I would love to sing this again. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. I want you to consider verse 3. Every joy or trial falleth from above. Really? Traced upon our dial by the Son of Love, we may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. High, a high view of God leads to high worship, and how we view God is how we live our lives. May we live our lives with a high view of who He is. May we study Him. May we be interested in Him through what He has revealed in His Scripture and in Scripture alone. Let us rise to sing this together and sing it your best. Thank you.